Well, today we celebrate what in the church's calendar is called Epiphany. And in the Western tradition, we read of the wise men. That's different in the Eastern tradition, where the feast of the Epiphany is primarily linked to the baptism of Jesus. Epiphany literally means the appearing of the light. Epiphany, phanos, light, epi, on us, the light on us. And both stories are epiphanies. In our reading today, the star appears. It's all about the star. The star appears and leads the wise men to Jesus. In the story of the baptism of Jesus, God is revealed as Father. There's a voice speaking from heaven. The beloved Son is presented to us and the Holy Spirit is shown in the form of a dove. And as we look at this story today, <coughs> I would like to speak of three things that it reveals to us. Firstly, it's an epiphany and a revelation about Jesus that leads us to worship him. Secondly, it's an epiphany, a revelation about ourselves that leads us to repent. And thirdly, it's an epiphany that leads to joy. Firstly, an epiphany, the making known of Jesus Christ, the Son of God through the leading of a star. Now I need to say a word or two about the wise men. People say they were astrologers, but if they were, they were very different to the so-called astrologers who write our horoscopes today. At its best, a horoscope is fraudulent. At its worst, it is demonic. If you are controlled by your horoscope, if it shapes what you do in the day, or if you fear what will happen if you do not read your horoscope, then you need to ask God's forgiveness, and you need to seek his mercy, and you need to seek help. Having said that, I do rather like the story of the horoscope writer who got bored. And so he wrote at the beginning of the year, let's imagine at the beginning of this year, for one particular star sign, because he just got, you know, fed up writing all the stuff about you'll meet the tall, dark, handsome stranger, or whatever it was, that he wrote, all the woes of previous years will be nothing in comparison to the horrors that you will meet in 2023. Well, actually, he was slightly true for himself because he got the sack. <laughs> the point of the Christmas story is that when you go out there and look up at the stars and see them, and wonder what they are saying, they have already spoken to us. And they've said, go and seek Jesus. And the light of the star reveals that the baby born in Bethlehem is the creator of the stars. They reveal him as the Lord of creation before whom stars bow. They reveal him as the one promised to Moses 2,000 years previously, 
where, when, where, when the prophecy is given, a star shall come out of Jacob. Uh, they reveal him as in Revelation 22 verse 16 says, the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. I love that. The root of da the descendant of David, you know, one of David's great, great uh, grandchildren. But also in his role as son of God, in his role as eternal one, the one who was with God as the root, the foundation of David. He was there before David existed. And through the star, the baby born in Bethlehem is revealed as the king of the Jews, the son of David to be born in Bethlehem, the ruler who is to shepherd God's people, the Messiah, God's ruler. And as the wise men follow the star, they reveal him, they reveal him, as the one to whom kings from the east will come. Remember in Psalm 72, we read how kings from Sheba and Seba will come, how kings will bring gifts to him. That's how the wise men in Matthew have become kings, because people looked at this passage and they thought, wow, the Bible says how people will come from the east to worship Jesus and offer him gifts. It talks of wise men, they must be kings as well. And this is an epiphany where we see the glory of Jesus which should lead us to worship. We may not be kings, we may not be that wise, but these wise men are prototypes for us. We are foreigners who have seen the star and the light of Jesus, and we come to worship the King of Jews who has also become our King. And he is the one in whom, if we each come to him and bow before him and offer our gifts and our lives, he is the one in whom we find our harmony, our purpose, our unity and our joy. So the story reveals Jesus Christ to us, the one who we worship. And secondly, this story, or maybe possibly the next few verses, reveal the depths that the human heart can sink to. We, we read here of Herod. Herod who tells the wise men, go and tell me where he is so that I might come and worship him. But of course we know, because we've read the next bit, we know the story that Herod did not want to worship Jesus. Herod wanted to make sure that Jesus was out of the way. And in the next verses after this, the ones we've just read, we learn that in order to feel secure on his throne, he gives the order that all children in Bethlehem under the age of two are to be slaughtered. It's all about him. We don't have the power of Herod but to be totally honest, there are things about Herod in each one of us. We have the children that we slaughter in order to calm our insecurities. So often it is all about us. In his last work before he died, the Russian philosopher Vladimir Soloviev wrote about the Antichrist. It is quite a dramatic piece of writing. 
The Antichrist is a remarkable person. When I do that, I'm quoting him, amusing his words. The Antichrist is a remarkable person who is a great writer, thinker, philanthropist, sympathetic to all in need. His great intelligence always showed him the truth of what one should believe in, the good God and the Messiah. You might think, well, what's wrong with that? But Soloviev says, in these he believed, but he loved only himself. He believed in God, but in the depths of his soul, he involuntarily and unconsciously preferred himself. He believed in good, but the all-eyeing sea of the eternal knew that this man would bow down before the power of evil as soon as it would offer him a bribe, his own immeasurable self-love. He was so enamoured of his own gifts that he thought himself to be what Christ in reality was, notes Soloviev. He showed himself as a kind-hearted humanitarian who appeared to love all forms of life. He was a vegetarian, was concerned about ecology, and was an ecumenist. He came to believe he was the world's final saviour. There was only one thing he could not do when he asked himself if he could say, Lord Jesus Christ, forgive me, a sinful man. He said, shall I not be compelled like an old Polish woman to prostrate myself? I, the serene genius, the superman, it cannot be. The story we read today shows us the persistence, the generosity, the humility and the obedience of the wise men. But in Herod, it also holds up a mirror to us. We look at him, and if we are honest, we see our own self-love. The self-love which is prepared to sacrifice others for ourselves. The self-love which blinds us to the needs of others, which makes us trample over others in order to achieve our goals. It is the self-love which makes us think that our life and our views are superior, are more valuable, are more important than that of the old Polish woman. And that is an epiphany, a revelation about the depths to which our heart can sink. And it is a revelation which should lead us to repentance. But there is a third epiphany in this story, and this is the revelation of joy. Verse, chapter 2, verse 10. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. They were overwhelmed with joy. It's easy to forget that. We speak of repentance and sorrowing for our sins. We speak of costly obedience to the Lordship of Christ. But we often forget that the goal of the Christian life is joy. Yes, there is the joy of heaven when we will see God as he is, when we will be in right relationship with each other and the new creation. Jesus, we're told in the book of Hebrews, endured the shame and pain of the crucifixion 
for the sake of the joy that was set before him. But joy is not just something that is waiting for us in heaven. There is joy, there can be joy here and now because the Lord is near. Much of my thinking about Christian joy has been shaped by a dream that I had about 10, 15 years ago. The details are not important. Suffice it to say that in my dream I had died and I was in something like an airport departure lounge waiting to go to heaven. Read nothing into that whatsoever. But what I do know is I suddenly knew that Jesus was near. And my whole body, from the tip of my toes to the top of my head, exploded with joy. It woke me up, and it was something that lived with me for about a week. Now, no doubt a psychiatrist would be able to explain that experience, but I do remember thinking at the time, well, if this is a glimpse of the joy of heaven, then bring it on. And I reflected on that experience in the light of what the Bible teaches about Christian joy. And there are connections. Peter writes in one of his letters to Christians who are experiencing great suffering for their faith, even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable joy. Paul urges his readers in the church of Philippi to rejoice always, but he gives them a reason for rejoicing. He says, because the Lord is near. When the women meet the risen Jesus, after his crucifixion and his resurrection, they were filled, we're told, with both fear and with great joy. With fear, why? Because this was so out of their experience. But with joy, because Jesus has not left them. He has conquered death, and he is near. And the wise men see the star stop over the house where Jesus lies. Notice, they've not gone into the house. They've not seen the baby Jesus yet. They've simply seen the star stop over the house. And they know that they are now very near to him, or he is very near to them. And they are overwhelmed with joy. Some of us may have had glimpses of that indescribable joy. It can sometimes happen when God first meets us and he reveals himself to us. C.S. Lewis sp spoke of and wrote of his conversion. He wrote, and it happened to him on the top of a double-decker bus, he wrote that he was surprised by joy. For others, it can sometimes happen when they experience an infilling of the Holy Spirit. But please do not get anxious if you have not yet had such an experience. First of all, we can always know, we can know the joy that the Lord is near. He is near us in space. 
He is a friend who is beside us, who is so close to us. Indeed, his spirit is in us. He is near us in the tragedy and pain of life, and he is near us in the triumphs of life. There's nothing that can separate us from him and his love, not life, not death, not peace, not war, not tragedy or victory. If we love him, he will make all things, all things work for good for us. He is the Lord of all things. And secondly, one day, the veil will be taken away and we will have the fullest epiphany, the full revelation. We will see him face to face. We will be filled with joy. And like the wise men, we will fall down and worship him. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill your people with your joy. Amen.